Yesterday, I was thinking about uh, writing manuals, and I, and I glanced at my shelf, and I, I noticed Mary Oliver's book, A Poetry Handbook. Now, I read this in grad school, but you know, looking at it, I, I couldn't remember more than a line or two of it. So I thought, well, you know, I, I have vaguely warm feelings toward this, so I should just go ahead and reread it. I got about a third of the way through, and then I remembered that I had been assigned this in graduate school, and I had spoken warmly about it in class, uh, but that I had been absolutely too lazy actually to read it. Uh, but by this point, you know, I was I was already in too far, so I, I thought I don't really want to spend a whole more than a day on this. I have to power through, and I I did. I read the rest of the book. It's not that long a book, but I read the rest of the book, finished it last night, and I can report that it's fucking ridiculous. Uh, it's not a good book. I should not have felt warmly toward it. It's uh, simultaneously dull, confusing, obvious, and wrong, while also promoting this ethos that you know feels likely to inspire you know generations of uh, billowy sleeved uh, wooden bracelet wearing you know, confident poetry murmurers I, in her section on Whitman, for example. These two sentences appear consecutively. To study Whitman's poetry is to learn about Whitman's poetry, period. Such is genius, period. I, I, I'm baffled. I, for sheer you know, juxtapositional paradoxical brevity, I mean, that rivals Ezra Pound's In a Station of the Metro. I mean, that's a Zen koan. Uh, in place of using uh, the word boilerplate or cliched writing to talk about uh, writing that's tired, that's been overused. She chooses the term poetic diction, which in a book about how to write poetry is really fucking confusing. Um, in her section on imagery, she states, this is a quotation, figurative language is another term for imagery Ah, I mean, which I think the closest paraphrase of that I could think of would be metaphor is another term for thing. Um, oh, God. And her section on meter, I, it's, I mean, I about got an, an, an embolism. She, uh, she, you know, like Margaret Engel, like plenty of other people, she compares learning to write poetry to learning to play a musical instrument. Not an unfair comparison. And then she just concludes flatly, uh, you shouldn't try to teach people how to write in meter and rhyme. Young poets should not learn to write in meter and rhyme because it's too hard. It's too hard. Just forget it. Never mind. It's too hard. Uh, she, she refers to an unaccented syllable as a stress, uh, which is just almost exactly perfectly wrong, almost the perfect opposite of what's correct. Uh, similarly, she, she says the feminine ending blurs 
the end, or, or blurs the effect of an end rhyme, which again, which is the opposite of what it does. Uh, she, and then this is, okay, all right, so she continually refers to rhyme schemes as rhyming patterns, which, you know, descriptively speaking, isn't technically inaccurate, but it's a little bit like having the, the priest at your wedding refer to your marriage vows as you're getting married promises. It just, ah, it just doesn't sit right with me. I did not like this book. I uh, do not agree with this book. I would not recommend this book. And yet, she gets some things right. You know, in her... Uh, about the realities of workshops and the contrasting virtues of solitude. She's just about faultless. Uh, and her section on revision um, is, you know, concise, sharp, uh, thoughtful, and uh, you know, more or less uh, you know, spot on. Here's a, um, this little passage I marked I thought was, was quite nice uh, from the end of that section on revision. She says, it is good to remember how many sweet and fine poems there are in the world. I mean, it is a help to remember that out of writing and the rewriting, beauty is born. It is good also to remember that now and again, it is simply best to throw a poem away. Some things are unfixable. I, I thought that was pretty nice. I liked that. Um, and, you know, I think more importantly than all of this, She's, all right, I realize I'm not the target audience for this book. I am a grouchy, self-loathing, you know, vaguely existentialist lapsed Catholic. And she's a cheerful, well-adjusted, epicurean, talking butterfly. And so, you know, I, I thought about, I thought about the writing guides that I do love, uh, the, the grouchier writing guides, uh, the, the more, um, the more jaded writing guides, the, uh, um, the stuffier writing guides. I love Strunk and White, the elements of style. I love Hollander's Rhymes Reason. I love Gardner's The Art of Fiction. That is a, he's a fucking grouch uh, if there ever was one. Uh, I love Horace's Ars Poetica, The Poetics, um, even uh, Stephen King's On Writing. Um, and, and all of those are, are full of wrongness. I mean, they're all <laughs> flawed. They all get things uh, off. They, they all are short-sighted or they're, uh, um, they're biased. They're, uh, they're self-serving. They're, they're all of them messy and flawed, uh, and all of them, like uh, Mary Oliver's, um, show a, a thoughtful, uh, caring mind at work in a craft and in a tradition, pulling up the different pieces of it, examining them, and you know, putting pressure on them in order to identify what, what works where and how. 
you know, e even where she's most wrong, say intersection on meter, she still identifies accurately enough, enough of the basics that, that, you know, if you step back, you can more or less tell where she's wrong, but it, it, it's, it's obvious that there is a, an opinion and a human limited mind operating in addition to a, a less limited, uh, less subjective tradition, um, which is true again for all of these books. It's just that, uh, you know, I do think some are better than hers. I don't think she rivals Aristotle, but, uh, I, I also think that, you know, okay. So, uh, in the Odyssey, we, we take this word mentor from the Odyssey, from this moment when, uh, Athena, who is uh, devoted to Odysseus, she, she slips down onto the mortal plane and she disguises herself as an old man named Mentor in order to nudge Odysseus' son Telemachus uh, along, uh, further along in, in, the, in his adventure um, to, to, to advance his father's ultimate uh, happy homecoming. Now, in contrast to the way we use the word mentor today, the mentor in the Odyssey is, is hardly a, a constant, encouraging, uh, a dependable source of advice and wisdom for Telemachus. The, the, the mentor in the Odyssey is the, the sort of a sudden, uh, a, a slightly disorienting, uh, prov provocative uh, intervention rooted totally in lies and deception uh, with a, with a, absolutely with his own agenda or her own agenda. Um, this is just a, a, a powerful colliding presence the, the, for collision with which Telemachus is ultimately richer. Um, and that's about like the experience of reading the art of fiction. You know, if I'm, if I'm honest, I, I'm as uh, moved by having gotten to witness uh, John Gardner's you know, arm wrestling with himself over 200 pages as I am, uh, uh, as I am, you know, any better informed writer for having heard his you know, often sort of cockeyed observations about technique. Um, so in conclusion, um, if you are a healthy, um, nature-loving, uh, kind, generous soul who doesn't care that much about prosody, but uh, who likes poetry, and, and more importantly, who likes the person that you see in the morning when you look in the mirror, then you really ought to read Mary Oliver's A Poetry Handbook. She's honestly, genuinely wonderful. And so are you. But, you know, frankly, if, if that's the kind of person you are, then you're not listening to this fucking show.
You know, a couple years ago, there was that book, uh, Dreyer's English by the Random House um, copy chief. Uh, it was a, um, it was a writing style guide. Pretty, pretty good. The, um, the subtitle here, the subtitle was, uh, it was Dreyer's English, an utterly correct guide to clarity and style. And I thought it was pretty smart, pretty reasonable throughout. You know, it's I, obviously the, the subtitle is a little bit tongue in cheek, uh, the utterly correct part. But if there's one thing that kept it from standing out of the crowd of popular style guides, it was a lack of any interesting wrongness. Oh, God, and I, I forgot the, um, I didn't even mention Arthur Quiller Couch's uh, lectures on the art of writing, which is so fucking good. I, I, the, I mean, just the last lecture alone, I might have to devote an episode to. Uh, but I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, uh, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts, a podcast about poetry and other intractable problems. Today, I, I thought I would, uh, I've gotten a fair amount of um, e- emails and, and notes in through different uh, media, and um, I uh, I thought I'd, I'd, I would answer some questions and respond to some comments because I've, I've gotten some really lovely notes and some really lovely notes that had some, uh, some, some complaints or requests. Uh, so I thought I would talk about some of those, and and there's a, maybe a slightly longer one I uh, I'm going to get to uh, at the end. But um, to start off, and most of these I'm going to leave uh, unnamed because I don't want to um, I don't want to call uh, attention to anybody who does not want it. Um, but uh, so I, I got I got a, a very nice note through a ratosphere from a listener who uh, asked for manna more. And I, you know, I, I knew manna from the Bible, but I didn't realize it's, I guess, can be used as a synonym for more. In any case, uh, thank you. That was very nice. Um, another another listener also said some very nice things and then added that uh, he I could be very long-winded, he said. <laughs> um, and also that the show didn't have enough poems in it. Uh, uh, thank you to that as well. I cannot promise to uh, become any less long-winded over time, but I can uh, promise to add some more poems. Uh, And I will try to start with that um, this week. Uh, So this this next um, listener, uh, I'm laughing. I'm I'm very, very grateful for all this. I'm laughing only because this was an especially prolific uh, response. Um, (laughs) responder. She had a lot of notes. Um, I'm going to call her E, which is not her name or initial, but it will be helpful because there were, there were multiple notes from the same person or sorry, there were multiple criticisms from the same person, all of which I thought were worth, uh, 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 you know, a moment's consideration at least. So, um, she said that the logo was very nice. She complimented the logo, um, the little, uh, red square with the, uh, skeleton, and the, the word sleeve rickets in it. She said it was, it was a good logo, but it was misleading. And here's the, the quote from her note. I think the graphic perhaps sets up an expectation that isn't quite delivered. A kind of goth rock spliff visual communication. As although I think the content I've listened to is erudite, well-argued, well-presented, and interesting, thank you. Apart from the odd expletive, it doesn't really echo the goth rock spliff vibe. Uh, 
I can't argue. Um, uh, I, the one, sorry, the one, uh, the one quibble I, I do have is that uh, is with the word spliff, which is I believe British for joint. To my knowledge, that skeleton is smoking a standard issue tobacco cigarette, or maybe a hand rolled cigarette. Um, so that is actually a study my my brother did of uh, Van Gogh's painting, Head of a Skeleton with a Burning Cigarette. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, um, the if there is a a uh, divergence between the um, the mood or the tone of the logo and that of the show, it is simply uh, the the difference. It represents the difference between uh, how cool my brother is and how cool I am, <laughs> or am not. Uh, so I, I did. I did. I I asked him for some sort of memento mori because I thought that would be fitting, and this is what he came up with, which I quite. Uh, I quite like, though I I, I like a, um, a like a square small town dad with a motorcycle club tattoo. Uh, I, I I will probably never live up to its its promise, but I will I plan to stick with it. Uh, a quick note, because the the, um, the the font which we we negotiated between us. <laughs> Uh, is is a black letter font. Um, he did his his uh, his line in the sand was uh, he he said sans serif fonts are for cowards. Um, he, he, my brother's a designer and artist. He works for the Eckelman Studio and he's a, um, a photographer and artist in his own right. But he's uh, he has has strong opinions about sans serif fonts. He thinks that uh, sans serif fonts are uh, for for those who've been brain poisoned by. Uh, the Steve Jobsification of uh, 20th century American industrial design. So I, I will I'll, I'll, uh, in, include in the show notes a, a link to his uh, website. Um, he's a very good artist. Do brace yourself for a lot of nudity. Um, all right, so back to E, uh, my uh, very thoughtful uh, listener. She also asked for timestamps for the different segments um, so she could <laughs> skip the ones that sounded less interesting. Uh, totally fair request. Uh, I'm learning the technology as I go, and I will I will get to that at some point. I'm sure. Um, and and then her, her final um, criticism, and I think maybe the most uh, the the one that, that warrants the most uh, thoughtful response on my part was that she she said I I, uh, I only present one perspective, which is fair enough given that it's a podcast. But she sort of wished, uh, given the length of the um, show that there were uh, there was room for more critical conversation uh i the simple answer is i am planning um some really good interviews with with uh with some different uh, writers different people and uh so you there will be some more literal voices in the room very soon i'm going to come back to that uh criticism later because it, it's uh, it was echoed by another um uh, actually a friend um, uh, <laughs> Brian wrote to let me know that, uh, in, despite my claim in, I think it was episode three, you can teach dessert in school. I think the, the, the it was, um, Adam Kirsch's observation that poetry is, is dessert, but it gets taught as if it's vegetables. I think I, you know, Brian's right. You, you can teach poetry as if it is dessert. You can't, you know, I, I do when I, when I used to teach, my goal was always to make 
the uh, material I brought in to choose the material, you know, for its uh, appealing qualities, among others, and to try to uh, make it as appealing, to present it in as appealing of a, a fashion as possible. The the downfall maybe of that strategy, and I think what I meant with my uh, with my remark that you can't teach dessert in school is that it may be one of those situations where by definition, once you bring it into school and teach it, it stops being dessert, sort of like how, you know, no matter how hard the thrash metal, once your parents are listening to it, you can no longer mosh to it. Uh, that, that was the, that was what I had in mind. Um, Angela, uh, wrote to to say again uh, <laughs> despite my uh my claim in episode four uh that that podcasting and asmr and maybe even porn can indeed be art under the right circumstances uh and and i think she is right again with a certain with a caveat and that caveat i guess is uh the insofar as ASMR podcasting porn is defined by a medium, but is defined by its sort of uh, the, the properties that it has and how it reaches our ears, minds, eyes, etc. Uh, any medium can be uh, put to the use of you know, making art. So definitely, yeah, of course. Insofar as it is defined by its function, maybe less so. Uh, Cameron wrote in with some very nice things to say, a lot of enthusiasm and, and um, some uh, interesting observations about the poetry world. And uh, also noted uh, Cameron is just 17 years old, which is fucking terrifying, um, but also uh, heartwarming. So uh, welcome again, Cameron. Uh, and my, I, I, I just hope that this uh, very dumb podcast does not scare you away from poetry. Uh, um, Shane McRae um, wrote and and uh, uh, he's a wonderful poet editor um, and I and I I well I don't know I think he's a reviewer as well but uh, definitely you know prolific prolific poet and editor of Image. Um, he wrote in among other things to recommend a poem that I had never read uh, and I, I thought uh, it's a it's very short so I thought I would just read it now because it's just really fucking good. Uh, so this is um, Days by Janet Loxley Lewis. Days. Swift and subtle, the flying shuttle crosses the web and fills the loom, leaving for a range of choice or change. No room. No room. That's it. Seven lines. Uh, seven lines, re- you know, uh, this is seven lines of Demeter, um, you know, incredibly tightly constructed. Uh, this is A-A-X-B-C-C-B. Um, that is a really fucking hard <laughs> kind of poem to write, let alone uh, while uh, constructing a, a an utterly lucid and um, uh, insightful and, and moving sentence as she does. Um Maybe the, the, the little element that I find most uh, interesting in it is that third line, um, which is the only unrhymed line. Now, I was trying to look this up um, 
And I, I need to dig up, I need to dig up one of my fucking glossaries. Maybe M.H. Abrams has this somewhere. But my my memory is that when you have in a um, in a stanza, you know, in, in, um, when you have a stanza with a regular rhyme scheme, and that stanza includes a single unrhymed line. I think there's a, um, I want to say that that Frost poem that got found uh, about the the Blue Jays. I think I think that one. That poem has has one of these. I think, it's, I think that's a five five line stanza with an unrhymed line. But my, my my recollection is that the unrhymed line in the stanza is referred to as a thorn, uh, which I may or may not be. I'm pretty sure that's true, but I could not find. It's actually hard to. My googling skills are not up to the task. Um, but uh, so I don't know if you would call it a thorn when it's only the one little stanza um but it's a, it's a wonderful word for that and in this case i think uh you know it it's a it's a a moment that calls attention to itself by not matching anything else in the poem and uh as it happens that the word that that lack of you know the, the one word the one end word that does not rhyme is web uh which is um is also uh a i think that image the spider's web i think doesn't appear anywhere else in the poem but of course we're talking about a loom here um and so uh, we can't help but think of arachne um who uh foolishly challenged uh athena to a contest and was uh for her for her trouble was transformed into a spider so there's a i think a wonderful kind of um uh a parallel threat here where where we feel at once caught in the web of the days that, that don't give us any room we can't escape these days in which we live but also that we are ourselves constructing this web in which we're caught and uh you know as um uh like arachne maybe it's, it's both our our work sort of traps us here and we are the thing that is you know we we are both the the spider and the prey um I'll read it once more. I mean, it's just a marvelous little tiny, tiny thing. Uh, this is, um, God, this is, uh, Gardner, I mentioned earlier, um, I think one of his more uh, salient observations in, in that book, which is about fiction, but you know, he said it's, it's a shame that there are a lot of really good books that we don't teach in class because they're so, the goodness of them is so self-evident that there's nothing left over for the teacher to point out. And so teaching them doesn't make the teacher look smart. So we leave them out of school and it's a real shame. I think this poem is sort of one of those. It doesn't need much commentary. It is so um, brilliantly, uh, self-evidently, uh, everything that it aims for. I'm gonna read it one more time. Days by Janet Loxley Lewis. Swift and subtle, the flying shuttle crosses the web and fills the loom, leaving for range of choice or change, no room, no room. I don't think it's uh, it's intended in this poem, but that, that no room, no room, you know, I, I <laughs> being as I am in the habit of reading a lot of children's uh, stories right now, um, I, I, of course, I think of Alice in Wonderland, um, no room at the tea party, uh, and that, of course, that along with a thorn um, reminds me of another 
one of the more brilliant uses of the thorn, so to speak, uh, being um, A. Stallings' poem, Alice in the Looking Glass. That's what I might want to actually read and talk a little bit more about another time. Um, but yeah, fucking thank you. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, uh, Janet Leslie Lewis. Um, all right. Oh, and uh, I, I learned just this morning, um, Shane also uh, just posted on Eratosphere for the first time. So if you're on there, make him feel welcome. Uh, he is uh, he is terrific. And so is Eratosphere. Uh, okay. So I, I wanted also to get to... Um, a, I, had a, I had a slightly longer conversation about the podcast with uh, Jonathan Farmer, who's, um, uh, again, uh, the, as, as with, um, uh, Shane and several of these, um, listeners is a, a poet. Uh, he's also a reviewer and, uh, the editor of at length, but he, um, was, uh, critical of the, my, the, the way I talked about the poems that I read at the end of the episode. And at least, um, I think you'd only listen to the first two or three at that point. But uh, as, as, he, as he noted, I, I took a moment in um, each case. I think maybe not in the case of the Fenton Johnson poem, maybe just because it's so uh, hard to recover from that one. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I, 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 will, I often will take a moment to examine the, a, a, a possible weakness or maybe a, a soft spot or an arguable compromise that... that is apparent in the poem and he thought that I gave too much time to that and then he thought you know if I'm going to bother to to bring up a poem that I think is worthwhile and and, and read it for people expose people to it then I, I shouldn't um I shouldn't give so much time to an examination of the poem's flaws uh which I think was a totally fair criticism um I, I did though have something I guess I did have something in, in, in mind there. Um, so, and this is, you know, this is why I, I mentioned E's comment earlier about bringing in multiple perspectives. I think the, the, the line that immediately came to mind when I read her note and that came back to me in listening to, to Jonathan's uh, criticism was this line from Kierkegaard. Um, I think it's in a, um, the concept of anxiety. He says, uh, every good sermon is really a dialogue, something like that. It's not, that's not a direct quote, but, but that's basically what he says. Every good sermon is a, really a dialogue. Um, I don't know for sure what he meant, but I do know that that, that line immediately made sense to me because you know, I think my first exposure to criticism uh, was going to Mass every Sunday as a kid and listening to the sermons. Um, you know, because a sermon... Is uh, is is not a simple speech. At least in the Catholic um, tradition, you have a deacon, often or or a priest uh, will read from the gospel, and there's a there's a, a, a prescribed reading for each Sunday of the year, and then there's actually a three year lectionary cycle. So, um, uh, which you which you go through the the three synoptic gospels. So the the deacon or priest will read from the gospel, and then give a sermon or a homily um, illuminating the reading from the gospel. What this meant in practice, you know, in my memory growing up was that the um, usually Irish uh, priest would tell a story from his own life or from some other context. 
and it would be a sort of a, a story that didn't necessarily um, uh, perfectly recapitulate the action of the, the reading from the gospel, but that in some way uh, reframed the gospel reading in light of modern life. So the, the homily was a, an interpretation, but it was also a sort of a, um, it was not just a gloss, it was a response. Um, it was a, a, um, a volley back. And then, of course, uh, instead of praying like I was supposed to afterwards, kneeling in the pew, I, I would chew over what I thought of this story, whether it was a good story, uh, whether I could make sense of it, what I thought of, you know, if, if, it, if, it, if it helped <laughs> clarify the gospel reading at all, which often it didn't. And then, of course, in the car ride home, uh, my, my dad would give his opinion and would, would uh, ask us what we thought and we would argue. And then often because I went to the, you know, I lived in this tiny little, <laughs> felt like a tiny Catholic uh, cloister for the first 14 years of my life. The, the school I went to was actually directly attached to the church. All, it was all one complex, so I would go to school on Monday, and often the teacher would have been at the same service and heard the same sermon, and then she would have her own remark on it. Um, and then, you know, as I said, you know, the, the liturgical calendar um, uh, turns over every year, and then the lectionary cycle turns over every three years. So, you know, going there for school and, uh, and, and mass year after year after year, uh, you know, I, I'd hear the same gospel reading come back around again, and, and uh, with a different sermon, but often, you know, uh, the same priest, sometimes a different priest, sometimes the same priest, but though he would be three years older, usually three years sort of sadder. And uh, the, the response, the interpretation, the, the, the gloss, the, the reframing, all of this would be a little different. And it would be also colored, of course, by, you know, my memory of, of the last go around. Uh, and you know, if I had a conclusion that I could draw from this experience, this exposure to the, the the concept of interpretation or of criticism, is that you know every story or opinion that I encountered, even outside of this context, to me was implicitly uh, stitched into a web made up of lots of other opinions and lots of other stories, and was tugged this way and that by its relationship to them and by its compromises and you know, gained richness from these others, but it also was not, um, uh, was not, you know, it never stood alone. And also was never, the whole process was never settled. This was never a, a done deal. And that, and that's actually not the same as saying everything's relative. It's not the same as saying everything's up for grabs. It was more like this kind of, um, the same way, honestly, that a spider, a spider's web is never finished. It, it, it performs its function, but it's always being revised um, toward, uh, toward a goal, not toward no goal, not meaninglessly, but uh, toward a goal that is never entirely complete. Um, and I, I kind of assume this maybe again uh, by my, you know, my Irish ethnic propensity for bullshitting, but I sort of assume that when I speak, uh, it, all of this goes without saying that uh, it's understood that this can't possibly be the last word on the subject. Um, and you know, speaking from my own personal experience, publishing reviews and essays, which you know, if there's any, if there's anything that's a, a sort of a, a clear, specific um, take 
that I've nailed down. It would be a, a book review. And I, you know, no sooner have I published one of those than I'm, I'm just ready to uh, entirely abandon that, that claim, that argument. I, I want to rethink it again from the beginning. Uh, I, I hate the idea of holding a position. Um, I'm much more interested in, uh, in trying to continue the conversation. So, um, I, by the way, I have a pet theory that, that like a large portion of the philosophical debates across history are really, um, can be kind of explained by a failure of each participant to, uh, account for what the other participants assumed went without saying, you know, um, Rather than, you know, we, we say, oh, well, you, you, why did you fail to mention this? Uh, why did you fail to mention that? Of course, you know, in, in many cases, I think the answer might be, well, I thought that was obvious. I didn't think I had to do that. Um, or in uh, simpler terms, as my friend Ryan Wilson likes to say that, you know, the same exact advice, especially for poets, good Lord, the same exact advice can be brilliant at one age and terrible at another. Uh, that um, puts me in mind of uh, a, a little Robert Hayden poem, which is it's a, a simple poem, and I think it's, it's a little bit of a sleeper. It seems to be a simpler poem than it is. Um, this is um, his poem, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, um, obviously for the uh, great um, poet, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Uh, he dedicates it to Herbert Martin, who's a, um, uh, a, another poet, though I, I believe a, closer to a contemporary of Hayden's. Uh, still alive, I believe, Herbert Martin. So um, Robert Hayden writes this poem, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and it, it appears to be an elegy poem, but it's, I think, and it is an elegy, but it's not quite, um, it's not quite exactly what it appears to be. I'm going to read it quickly. I'm not going to say a whole lot about it because I do want to keep moving us along. But, you know, briefly, this is uh, Robert Hayden's Paul Lawrence Dunbar for Herbert Merton. We lay red roses on his grave, speak sorrowfully of him, as if he were but newly dead. And so it seems to us this raw spring day, though years before we two were born, he was a young poet dead. Poet of our youth, his creed occur our own, his verses in a broken tongue, beguiling as an elder brother's antic lore. Their sad black face lilt and croon survive him like the happy look, subliminal of victim, dying man, a summer's ten types hold. The roses flutter in the wind. We weight their stems with stones then drive away. So, it, it, as I said, it appears to be a simple elegy. It's named after Paul Ernst Dunbar, and at the beginning is, we lay red roses on his grave. So you would think that it's a, you know, a one poet offering an elegy for um, another, but that's not quite exactly what's happening here. You know, as he says, you know, it, 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 it initially seems to be at a, you know, this seems to be a graveside service, but really, uh, this is a poet who's been dead and was dead well before these two young you know, poets were ever born. So they're not, it doesn't really make sense for them to be mourning him. He was always already dead as far as they're concerned. Uh, but there is a death 
that he's marking here. Um, he calls him poet of our youth, his creed occur our own, his verses in a broken tongue, beguiling as an elder brother's antic lore. And right there, you know, he puts in quotation marks, creed occur and in a broken tongue. And the suggestion there is, is that even as he's offering an appreciation for Dunbar's poetry, it's sort of uh, couched within these, um, this context of youthful fancy or naivete or romanticism. That this is the sort of thing that, you know, an, an, anti, an elder brother's antic lore is just the richest, most delightful, most engrossing thing in the world when you're a kid. But as you get older, it loses its power over you. Um, he, he says, their sad black face lilt and croon survive him. And that it refers to, Dunbar famously wrote a, a, a number of poems in... Uh, sort of a stylized uh, Black American dialect. Um, and that seems to be the way that Hayden is bracketing him, is, is setting him off and saying, well, that those poems, that kind of poetry, the poetry of our youth, the poet, he was our hero, and he wrote these kinds of poems, and, and that was then. And that was something we loved, and we were moved and inspired by, but no longer. Um, but of course, you know, that those poems, those dialect poems, only represent a small portion of Dunbar's poetry. I mean, he, he wrote a lot of poetry, he wrote prose, he wrote, uh, you know, he was a really prolific writer. And, and so um, it, it doesn't seem to be that Hayden is really mourning Dunbar, nor is he even, you know, uh, eulogizing Dunbar's poetry. He's really marking and setting off a part of his own poetic development that, that this he's not even mourning you know the Dunbar who was a poet or that he, he's mourning what Dunbar as a poet meant to him in his youth that's why I think there's something really nice uh, about the very last stanza there um, the roses flutter in the wind we weight their stems with stones, then drive away. You know, on a simple level, of course, you you, you want the, rose, the roses, the flowers you bring to the grave. You want them to stay there. You don't want them to blow away. But, you know, if we, if we, we imagine for a moment that, um, you know, Dunbar himself, Dunbar's reputation, Dunbar's poetry, is not really uh, adequately um, summarized or, or marked uh, were celebrated by Hayden's characterization in the poem. The roses are fluttering as if they want to fly. They, you know, he's trying to shake them off the gravy, and and Hayden and Martin need to weight them down. They say, no, 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 no. This is what you meant. This is this is that we're saying goodbye to you. They have to weight them down with stones and then drive away because, uh, uh, you know, almost in fear that um, that that this. Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the great old poet will come uh, rearing back to life. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, it's a funny little poem. Again, not because I think it's a, it offers an absolute argument, but really just because it's sort of, it's, it's, it's less a, a proper elegy than it is a kind of a lyric for a particular experience of youth and the still youthful uh, transition out of youth. You know, part of Part of being young is kind of shedding your skin multiple times and, and, and every day, you know, uh, observing to the world, oh, what a, what a fool I was yesterday. 
um, which of course takes a, and at some point one realizes that that, that never stops being the case. Uh, so um, when I talked to Jonathan, I mentioned a um, an example that I hadn't really thought about consciously, but but it was a little bit of a model for the the, the critical comments I've offered of these poems at the end of the podcast. Uh, a, mo- a model for it was, um, so I, I used to listen to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. It was never great. <laughs> I, I have not listened much to the new one. So it used to be um, uh, used to be hosted by Paul Muldoon, who is the former poetry editor. Uh, it's now hosted by Kevin Young, who's the current poetry editor. Both of those poets, I think, interestingly, fabulously talented. Just on a like on the level of like innate verbal ability, just stunning. And both of them, I think, have fallen down a little bit in their later years, sort of for complementary reasons. You know, in Muldoon's case, I think he he has um, lost touch with the kind of the the light, the lightness and the the um, sentiment of some of his early poems. He's begun to treat uh, the language of each of his poems as as so overly precious that they become stifling. And Kevin Young, I think, on the other hand, maybe has done a little bit the opposite. It has sort of has treated his his poems as he's gone along not not. It's not precious enough. There's sort of too much with, you know, with not enough um, sparkle. And with uh, with Muldoon, it's sort of all sparkle and no no life anymore. Um, not to construct a terribly coherent metaphor. But uh, when Muldoon was hosting the podcast, he so that the premise of the podcast is that they bring on a poet every week and that poet chooses a poem that's already appeared in the New Yorker, and he uh, reads it and then discusses it, and then uh, and then reads a poem of his own. So, um, uh, in the February sixteen, sorry, the February seventeen, two thousand sixteen uh, edition, Muldoon interviewed Stephen Dunn, and Stephen Dunn chose a poem by. Donald Justice, who was a teacher of his, he chose one of my very favorite poems of all time. And in this uh, podcast, it's a bit it's short, it's maybe 20 minutes. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to post a link if I can. I'm not sure how that'll work, but I, I'll post some kind of breadcrumb for you to follow because it's worth listening to. It's a you know short interview. Uh, Don is wonderfully curmudgeonly and uh, Muldoon, who is a brilliant man, I mean, an infuriatingly brilliant man comes off as a little bit of a eager to please bumbler, to be honest. In this one, I mean, it's really, it's I, I felt a little embarrassed for him. Uh, he just seemed very ready to agree with Dunn in a way that I, it just made me wish that he'd just been quiet. Uh, but um, so Dunn reads this poem by Donald Justice. It's the last poem in Justice is collected. It's called "There Is a Gold Light in Certain Old Paintings." Just fucking gorgeous poem and uh and then he he discusses it and he admires it tremendously but he takes a moment to poke at what he thinks is maybe a loose tile a little a little slightly failed choice and he he sort of wiggles it like a loose tooth and he 
considers it and he imagines trying to write it, trying to choose it. And, uh, and again, Muldoon's thoughts on this are really just, it seems as if he's trying to anticipate Dunn's next criticism. But Dunn, I think, is, is very sober and fair and measured in his criticism. And, you know, honestly, I know the poem quite well. I knew it quite well the first time I heard this interview, and I don't agree with Dunn. You know, he, he argues that it's a, a moment of slight awkwardness. And, and I think he, he may be right there, but if anything, that slight awkwardness enhances the effect of the moment in the poem. I think whether it's deliberate or not is a sort of an, not an interesting question to me, but I think it's, it's highly effective in that moment. I don't actually think that the flaw he points out in the poem is a flaw, but I was really grateful for the attention he gave it for two reasons. I think, you know, for one, uh, it makes the praise of the poem more convincing. Uh, I, um, I wrote an essay uh, a few years ago about um, a good friend who's also a poet, and I, I made a point to include a little bit of a little bit of uh, grime and grit, a little bit of, you know, uh, not entirely picturesque real life, um, partly because I wanted to show that the, the admiration was genuine, um, that it's not all just rainbows and unicorns. Um, and, and then I also think that when Dunn, um, you know, examines this funny little word choice that he thinks is maybe a little bit wrong, a little bit weak, uh, I, I, it reminded me of, I, I spent, um, uh, a few months working in a, um, costume shop, my, <laughs> get, getting the second of the two, um, equally useless, uh, degrees in drama that I have. Uh, but you know, when the, the head seamstress saw a piece that she really admired, the first thing she would do was flip it over and, and examine the seamy side, uh, as a, as a craftswoman. And that's what it felt like Dunn was doing. He was sort of putting his fingers over the joints, over the knots, over the, the, the construction of the piece in order to feel through it and read it the way uh, a, a poet does, who can admire the craftsmanship, who knows how difficult it is. So, it, you know, that criticism, my experience of it was not that it diminished the poem, not that it lowered the poem's grade or downrated it in some way, but that it actually made it easier to experience the poem more fully. And that may not be, and I gather has not been, the effect of my own you know, critical comments about the poems I've read, but that is the intention. Um, I am, I quickly, just because I can't fucking resist it, it's so good. I'm gonna quickly read this poem because it's so good. Um, this is Donald Justice. There is a gold light in certain old paintings. It's a three-part poem, it's short. There are three little, um, Sestets. There is a gold light in certain old paintings that represents a diffusion of sunlight. It is like happiness when we are happy. It comes from everywhere and from nowhere at once, this light. And the poor soldiers sprawled at the foot of the cross share in its charity equally with the cross. Orpheus hesitated beside the Black River. 
with so much to look forward to, he looked back. We think he sang them, but the song is lost. At least he had seen once more the beloved back. I say the song went this way. Oh, prolong now the sorrow, if that is all there is to prolong. The world is very dusty, uncle. Let us work. One day the sickness shall pass from the earth for good. The orchard will bloom. Someone will play the guitar. Our work will be seen as strong and clean and good. And all that we suffered through having existed shall be forgotten as though it had never existed. So the, uh, the, the, the line, the, the word that Dunn criticized in the poem is the second instance of uh, the word back. Um, with so much to look forward to, he looked back. We think he sang then, but the song is lost. At least he had seen once more the beloved back. That, you know, the um, back the second time around is a, a, a noun, is a body part. Uh, and he thought it was a little jarring, a little awkward. Uh, Muldoon agreed. <laughs> one suspects simply because that was the thing Dunn had just said. Uh, God, it's a fucking weird effect in that book. It's Dunn, Muldoon's so smart and he sounds so fucking dumb. Uh, but, you know, I think if, if that moment is a little bit jarring, once more he'd seen, uh, uh, at least he'd seen once more the beloved back, you know, rather than the beloved face, of course, which is which is what one expects. That I think that, that moment of surprise, that odd disappointment, that clumsiness, is exactly mimetic of Orpheus's experience. Of course, when he turns around, what he expects to see is the face, but he sees her back instead because she is already returning to Hades. Um, by the way, I don't know this for sure. Uh, and I imagine one of the um, many much more capable scholars who, who, um, uh, who might hear this could probably correct me, but I have a strong suspicion that the uncle in that last section, the world is very dusty uncle, let us work. I have a strong suspicion that that uncle is in fact, Uncle Vanya, because the last section, that third section is a loose paraphrase of Sonia's final speech in Uncle Vanya, in which she and Vanya are working. They're very tired, but they have to keep working. Uh, they have to maintain the estate on their own. Everybody else is leaving and they're left alone to keep working. That's their lot in life is just to work and to love people who don't love them. And she encourages him to, to work, you know, cheerfully and to imagine someday in the future when they go to heaven, um, everything they've done will, will be recognized and will will be their you know the their their lives will will be seen as valuable and uh, it will be revealed that God was watching them all along and smiling upon them and and then the 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 you know the just heartbreaking refrain is uh, we will rest we will rest we will rest and that's the end of the play uh, and it's maybe worth remembering in that wrenching moment that that's the that's the great hope at the end of the play 
this very sad domestic play. It's worth remembering, Chekhov was an atheist. So Sonia's vision of heaven is absolutely sincere and is really moving. It's not at all mocking. But one does get the feeling that it is a a doomed hope, an empty hope. Um, but the, the whole speech is addressed to her uncle, who is Uncle Vanya. He, she is the person to whom he is uncle. Um, one of my favorite fucking plays. By the way, um, Louis Mall, who I mentioned in the fourth episode because he uh, made the ambiguously pornographic movie The Lovers, his very last movie uh, was uh, called Vanya on 42nd Street. And it's terrific. It's a great production of Vanya. It's a great movie. Uh, I, I can't recommend it enough. Um, so, and then not at all pornographic. There's no, <laughs> no porn-like elements in that one. Vanya on 42nd Street. Um, so, you know, uh, all, all of which is to say, my, my hope is that if when I offer criticism, I'm, if anything, I'm sort of polishing the, the poem rather than tearing it down. But um, I'll, I'll, think, I'll think that over some more. I'll, I'll keep chewing on that uh, observation. Uh, and then finally, um, a, a, a lot of listeners, most recently Austin, um, another uh, wonderful poet, um, uh, a, lot, a lot of poets ask, a lot of listeners ask what the fuck Slee Ricketts means, um, which is a reasonable question, I guess, uh, six episodes in. Uh, so Slee Ricketts is a made-up word. It was made up by my youngest, my younger daughter. Um, it was her corruption of the word secrets. She couldn't say secrets, so she said slee rickets instead. But she also misused it to mean uh, any whispered speech. So when, when any of us whispered, she would refer to that event as slee rickets. Um, and apart from its uh, incomparable Google ability, given that nobody else uses that fucking word. Uh, I, I liked it because uh, I, I'm, you know, at the moment I'm recording these, I have to record them in the middle, in the middle of the night uh, because, uh, and the, well, you know, the girls are asleep down the hall. So I, um, I have to keep my voice down at least when I remember to. Um, uh, let's finish this very long segment there. And uh, I, maybe I'm going to read one more fucking poem because why not? And, you know, uh, uh, anonymous listener number two who said I was long-winded. Sorry for being long-winded. However, you're welcome for all the extra poems this go-around. Um, so let's take a break on that note. Okay, uh, we're back. Uh, it has been a little longer for me than it has been for you. I've recorded a few of these now, um, closing uh, segments with um, poems, and I just haven't been happy with uh, with any of them. So uh, it's quite late, and I'm quite tired, and I thought I would just read you a poem that I really love. That's um, sort of a small, quiet thing, but I've been very fond of it for some time. So much so that I realized only tonight that I stole a version of its opening line in a poem I wrote 
years ago. Um, but uh, this poem steals its title from another poem. And that poem was uh, uh, from a collection that steals its title from yet another poem going back and back. So I don't feel too guilty. Uh, I'm going to read uh, a poem by Ashley Anna McHugh tonight. This is the unquarried blue of those depths is all but blinding. And uh, it, it is somewhat significant that title is taken from Anthony Hecht's uh, wonderful poem, A Letter, which I might read to you on another night because it's also uh, one of my very favorites. Um, that poem is uh, an epistolary poem spoken to a former lover, um, a, a, a former adulterous lover. Uh, and in that poem, he, he uses a sort of a governing metaphor of the, the blood as a, as a deep and constantly moving sea in which the, the lover is never forgotten and the past is never forgotten. And um, he says, uh, the blundering blood knows what it knows. It talks to itself all night like a sliding moonlit sea. And then toward the end of the poem, he says of this same See, uh, my dearest, the clear, unquarried blue of those depths is all but blinding. So that's where uh, Ashley and McHugh got the title of this poem, which uh, originally appeared in the Hopkins Review and was later uh, published in Into These Knots a collection that won the New Criterion Prize, I think in 2010. Uh, so this is a little, um, little sonnet. The unquarried blue of those depths is all but blinding for John Fogelman is the dedication. There are some things we just don't talk about, not even in the morning when we're waking. When your calloused fingers tentatively walk the slope of my waist, how love's a rust-worn boat, abandoned at the dock. And who could doubt waves lick their teeth, eyeing its hull? We're taking our wreckage as a promise, so we don't talk. We wet the tired oars, tide drawing us out, we understand there's nothing to be said. Both of us know the dangers of this sea. Warned by the tide-worn driftwood of our pasts. But we've already strayed from the harbor. We thread a slow wake through the water. Then silently we start to row. And will for as long as this lasts. So in, in Hecht's poem, the speaker uh, addresses his, his former lover with a, a, a new perspective on everything that they shared and an understanding that it's best for them 
not really to think of each other, certainly not to talk to each other. And um, really, it's fairer to everyone if they just uh, forget all about it. And in uh, McHugh's poem, there's a similar understanding, but it's in the moment. It's, it's a sad poem, but it's a slightly different sadness because rather than looking back on a doomed affair, uh, her lovers are looking forward. They're looking into their own immediate present and future. Uh, and so the whole poem takes place in that um, sliding moonlit sea. They're in the sea the whole time. Uh, which for um, Hecht was a sort of uh, a symbol of the, the restless past. For them, in McHugh's poem, it's, it's all around them. It would be very easy for this metaphor of the, the sea to get tiresome and silly and sort of goofy, sentimental. But I think what helps is that uh, it is itself... Uh, kind of a pretense, a conceit, that they know that what they're doing is foolish. They already know. The poem already seems to make a mockery of the metaphor that consumes their relationship. Down to the waves licking their teeth, eyeing the hull, it's a sort of a cartoon. That that's, that's the substance of their days together. There is, um, I think, a, a slight development between the first line, uh, the first line of the octave, I should say, and the first line of the sestet. Uh, the poem begins, there are some things we just don't talk about. And, and then the sestet begins, we understand there's nothing to be said. In both cases, there's no talking, but in the first case, there's a suggestion that there might be some denial. Uh, and in the second, there's no room left for denial. Um, it's not that they're resisting the talk, it's that there's a, a resignation. There's an understanding that, um, that this can go nowhere. But it doesn't end with uh, you know, a, a shipwreck or something like this. It, it ends with the, the steady, quiet, deliberate continuation. We start to row and will for as long as this lasts. It is a potentially very sentimental image, but the tone of the whole poem is so muted, so restrained. Uh, I, I find it um, quite moving. But as I said, I'm very tired, so I'm just going to read it again and then sign off. This is the unquarried blue of those depths is all but blinding by Ashley Anna McHugh. There are some things we just don't talk about, not even in the morning, when we're waking, when your calloused fingers tentatively walk the slope of my waist. How loves a rust-worn boat, abandoned at the dock. And who could doubt waves lick their teeth, eyeing its hull, we are taking our wreckage as a promise, so we don't talk. We wet the tired oars, tide drawing us out. 
we understand there's nothing to be said. Both of us know the dangers of this sea, warned by the tide-worn driftwood of our pasts, but we've already strayed from the harbor. We thread a slow wake through the water, then silently we start to row, and will for as long as this lasts. I don't quite know what to make of that um, that little choice. We thread line break a slow wake through the water. It fulfills the form. I'm not sure. I'm, 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 I'm not sure about that choice, but I do really love on a, another reading the line, we wet the tired oars, tide drawing us out, uh, which is a, a wonderfully passive way of saying that we we row the boat, um, we wet the oars. There's a, there's a deep acknowledgement there that they are, um, they are not the ones in control. There are other forces moving them at this point. Well, that was uh, Ashley Anna McHugh's poem, The Unquarried Blue of Those Depths is All But Blinding. And this is Slee Ricketts. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, and thank you to everybody who wrote in with uh, questions, comments, complaints, suggestions. Uh, please continue. I, I, you know, I imagine I will, whether it's all in one episode or, or piecemeal, I will uh, do my best to respond to everyone who, um, who has something to say. Um, so do write in. Um, if you have a chance, uh, subscribe and rate and review the podcast. But, but um, even if you don't do any of that, uh, take a moment, if you like, what you've heard and just recommend the show to a friend and uh, with any luck i will be speaking to you again pretty soon till then <laughs>